This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. Years of public consultation on Canadian digital policy hit an important milestone last week as Innovation Science and Economic Development Minister Navdeep Bains released the government's digital charter. Touching on a wide range of issues, Canada's digital charter features 10 guiding principles. Universal access, safety and security, control and consent, transparency, portability and interoperability, open and modern digital government, a level playing field, data and digital for good, strong democracy, freedom from hate and violent extremism, and finally, strong enforcement and real accountability. To help sort through the digital charter and its implications, I'm joined on the podcast this week by Professor Teresa Skaza. A friend and colleague at the University of Ottawa, Professor Skaza holds the Canada Research Chair in Information Law and Policy. She writes frequently on information and data issues at her website at teresascaza.ca, appears regularly in the media and before House of Commons committees, and serves on several key advisory boards and panels, including Waterfront Toronto's Digital Strategy Advisory Panel and the newly created Federal AI Advisory Council. Teresa, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. Oh, it's great to have you. So we're recording this at the end of a week in which the Innovation, Sci- Innovation Science and Economic Development Minister, I said Minister, Navdeep Baines, has been off-selling the digital charter in Toronto, in Montreal. It's been in the news regularly. And so I want to talk a bit about the charter and, I guess, consider whether or not Canadians ought to be buying what the minister has been selling. Um, why don't we start with a little bit of background, though? Okay. What is the digital charter. The federal government is launching a new digital charter to protect, they say, Canadians' personal data. Ottawa is promising changes to federal privacy laws to give Canadians more control over their personal information when it's collected by technology companies. The government laid out a series of principles today. They say will guide changes to the Privacy Act. The changes will also include penalties and fines for tech and social media companies that breach the new privacy law. So does that mean the government will start Finding Facebook right away? When can Canadians expect these new protections to kick in? The digital charter is uh, built around 10 principles that are uh, intended to guide the government's digital strategy going forward. So um, so they've called it a digital charter. They've, uh, they've set out these principles. And, um, and uh, yeah, and that's, uh, that's essentially what it is. Um, and the principles are are somewhat broad principles, but the, I guess the issue, if you hear the hesitation in my voice, the issue I have with the digital charter uh, is that 
Um, I don't like the word the use of the word charter in there because I would see it. I would call it a digital chart. <laughs> it's a roadmap. Right. It's uh, here are some principles that are guiding us as we develop policy. And that's fine. And they're interesting principles and they will shape or guide policy. But a charter is uh, a charter is a document that confers rights um, and entitlements. And, and often those are actionable rights. Um, and so there are things in this digital charter uh, that maybe should be rights, uh, but aren't. They're just principles like Canadians should have universal access, not Canadians have a right to access, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, so you know, it may sound a little bit like quibbling, but I think that if we're serious about um, a, if something like a charter articulating the basic rights that Canadians should have in a digital society, this isn't the document. This is a roadmap to developing um, digital, a digital strategy, digital policy, and it may be an interesting roadmap, but it's not a charter. That's a, that's a really interesting perspective. So it's a, it's a roadmap or a chart, or it sometimes has almost a checklist yeah. kind of feel on a whole yeah. sort of issues, including universal access and the privacy issues and open government and those sorts of things. So given that it is not that charter in the sense that one might typically think of something conferring rights, I take it this is a bit more aspirational in terms of where where they where the government says they could be going as opposed to resulting in something immediate. It's going to be very difficult to pass any legislation at this point. What we've done is proposed policies and changes to the privacy legislation that we'd like to implement in a timely manner. Clearly, there's very limited runway in the legislative agenda for the, this session. So the hope is for uh, to putting it in our platform and also in the next mandate as well, if we're fortunate enough to earn the trust of Canadians. It's almost like... Um a political platform, <laughs> you know, given that an election is six months. It's, it's, it's basically saying this is, this is where, what we're thinking, where we'd like to go. These are the, you know, the values that will underpin what we're going to do in terms of digital strategy. And so all of that's well and good. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and I think it's, it's, it's good to set those out. So, but that's what it has the feel of. I mean, there are things in there that, um, that aren't new. Again, the concept of universal access. How long have we been talking about universal access in Canada? How long have we been talking about, uh, well, you mentioned privacy, but privacy isn't actually one of the principles. Control or consent uh, is a principle. Um, uh, better enforcement uh, of all rights, not just the, the privacy rights, is a principle. But there isn't actually a principle that says, you know, that talks about privacy as a, as a right. It's, it's about aspects of data protection, essentially. Oh, that's right. Why don't we actually go there and talk a bit about the privacy sure. side, which is, which was certainly one of the aspects of the chart or charter that included a full background paper and that the minister has been talking quite a lot about, and it's obviously got a fair amount of attention. Mm -hmm. You know, I know the privacy commissioner of Canada was out speaking this week also at a yes. major privacy conference and was talking about the need for a rights-based framework. Do you have the sense that the minister, that the minister and the government are on the same page as where the privacy commissioner wants to go? No, no. I think that what we have uh, in the the document re uh, from I said about um, reforming PIPA essentially is um, is a discussion of the reform of a data protection statute. It's data protection reform. It's not um, a, a human rights based um, approach to privacy. Um, or to digital rights more generally. It is 
it is a set of reforms to data protection laws. And that may sound like a subtle distinction, but I, I do think... Um, I do think it's it's an interesting and important one. Uh, we don't actually have a right to a, a broad right of privacy that's contained in the in the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. There's a right to be free from unreasonable search and seizures. So there's a, a search and seizure related privacy right that comes up in a number of different contexts, mostly related to law enforcement. Um, there's been some discussion around the, whether the right to life, liberty, and security of the person has a privacy dimension, but it's not extensive if, it, if there is one. Um, and so we don't have sort of a broader uh, right or a set of principles around uh, privacy. Uh, one of the things that I think is interesting, and I, and I find entirely absent from this, and not just this, but other kind of data protection-oriented things, is, is, this, is, the, is any um, addressing of the issue of surveillance. Um, individuals to to a completely unprecedented extent are being exposed to surveillance both by the private sector and we hear a lot about surveillance capitalism and surveillance in the context of smart cities um, but there is a just a massive data collection which is a, a form of uh, private sector surveillance um, and the part that doesn't ever get talked about a great deal is the extent to which uh, government has back channels into all of that private sector data um, and and can carry out various forms of surveillance um, using those back channels for access. And I'm not saying they're kind of illicit back channels, but they can get um, you know judicial authorizations or warrants. And there have been disputes in the past about whether they need warrants for access to some of that information. But there are routes by which government can access the, those massive amounts of uh, data in the hands of the private sector, and, and th some of those channels are set out very explicitly in the data protection laws, and these are the exceptions to the requirements for consent. Um, and so, I, you know, and I think this is a part of data protection that always gets ignored, um, which is that these exceptions to consent expand, and the channels and the routes are there, and the, the amount of data that's being collected by the private sector expand. Um, and we never really talk about what we need to do what kind of frameworks we need in place, what kind of um, uh, pr additional protections we need in place to manage um, the, the significant changes in both the volume of data in the hands of the private sector and the interest in government in having access to it. And I do think that we need to be thinking about that. So, you know, if you want to talk about a human rights-based approach to... to um, uh, privacy legislation, I'd like to see a right to be free from unjustified surveillance. And, and then I'd like to you know, see what that looks like in practical terms. So this is something I think that we don't see in the digital charter and we don't see it in this discussion about PIPEDA and it doesn't get talked to, uh, about a great deal. But I do think it is um, a very significant issue um, and, and one that um, will, I think, uh, have uh, continue to have or may have greater ramifications, for example, when you get um, uh, data, um, um, when, when we get more standardized data, for example, um, open banking and standardized uh, uh, financial information, it's going to be very tempting for governments to, um, to, to analyze large volumes of data looking for red flags or looking for patterns in the way that they now get tower dump warrants, for example, and, and 
look for things within the data that they collect. And again, that's data from the private sector. So it, that's a little bit of a side issue. It's not in any of these documents. But to me, I think this is something that we don't talk about enough and we don't think about enough. And it's, it's the relationship between all of that private sector data and government and how we are going to manage that relationship in a way that, 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 is, that is in the public interest but that also uh, protects our, uh, our rights. It's so perspective. I mean, it strikes me that this document, or particularly the privacy background stuff, not only does not address that issue, but it's focused primarily on private sector. And presumably the minister would say, well, that's where my constitutional responsibilities are. But mm. whether we're talking about the political parties and the ongoing yeah. gap there, or even the Privacy Act, which they have also said now we're prepared to take a look at after decades of really not doing very much, the focal point in terms of saying we're going to modernize these rules is almost entirely private sector focused without really looking internally at the government itself. Yeah. And I and I do think that's really I think that's really important because the two are now very, very closely linked in, in so many different ways. Um and you and you can see the the interaction of public and private sector again in things like Sidewalk Toronto, where there's you know there, there's an increasing overlap between the things that government do and the things that the private sector do and the things that they do together and 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 data caught in between. And so I, I think this is uh, becoming more and more of a, a challenge and issue. And so it's true. You you mentioned political parties. I mean, there's there's a uh, a little bit in the statement about the or the document about the reform of PIPITA that talks about how it might be necessary to look at whether um, uh, the application of PIPITA needs to be changed because there are more uh, and more nonprofit organizations that are engaged in data collection. And I was reading that and I thought, mm, and this would be a place to mention political parties, but they're not there. Um, whether they're nonprofit organizations, they fall under that umbrella of nonprofit organizations that we need to think about or look, about, look, look at, whether it's meant to fall under that, I don't know, but it's not there in any explicit term. And that's, you know, it's been difficult to get governments of all political stripes to focus internally once they get into office, it seems like. Making changes, whether it's on the access to information side or on the privacy side, is yeah. far more challenging. And I suppose it's easier to get other people to, to measure up. And even that's been difficult in terms of PIPITA reform. When I think of the early stages of PIPITA, it talked about trying to strike a balance, and mm -hmm. business considerations and the like. And that was the way we understood business and e-commerce back in the 1990s, and we clearly have some different conceptions and different models today. Can you talk a bit about some of the kinds of things the government is talking about from an updating perspective yeah. that perhaps are welcome, that, that are and perhaps even long overdue in terms of some of the changes they're trying to make? Yeah, and I, and I think the government has taken um, a serious look at, at um, some of the challenges, the need for modernization. There are things in here that look a little bit like some of the things that are in the uh, the famous GDPR that everybody's talking about. Um, and so, for example, there are um, some of the interesting things. I mean, there, there's there's talk about things like um, data portability, although it's referred to as data mobility, um, and that's the idea of uh, it's it's partly. Data it's data protection in the sense of giving individuals more control over their data, um, but it also, I think, is linked to both consumer protection and, and competition law. So it's, it's one of those things that's a little bit broader in terms of its scope. And the idea is that individuals would be able to take their data from one company and bring it to um, a new company entering the market that 
that will then be able to, with that data, be able to offer them comparable a comparable level of, of customized service for service, for example. Um, and so, uh, so there's some discussion of data mobility. It's interesting. It's a little bit different from the GDPR in that they're not talking about um, uh, data in machine readable format, but talking about data in standardized format, which is a little bit different and um, maybe a little bit more case by case, industry by industry. Um, and uh, so, so that's interesting. Um, so data mobility is one aspect. There's some uh, discussion of, um, uh, there's a little bit of discussion about the right to be forgotten, but they're not going there fully because there's a court case before the Federal Court of Canada. But, but it's mentioned that this might be something, that reputational rights, and linked to that, the right to um, have information deleted uh, for individuals to ask that their information be deleted, which is uh, a dimension of that. Um, there's some discussion about um, algorithmic, uh, well, I was going to say algorithmic transparency, but perhaps a right to explanation of automated decision-making. Um, and so, again, that's something I think that people are concerned about and interested in. Um, there's also discussion about... Um, making changes to uh, the rules around consent um, in a variety of different ways to try and make uh, individual control over personal data more manageable. So um, both um, reducing the amount of information that's pushed at consumers and making it more accessible uh, and easy to understand, um, but also um, providing other um, other means by which individuals can manage their personal information. And there's some, you know, there's some interesting stuff also about uh, relying on standards and um, uh, data trusts um, and other sorts of mechanisms to allow for management of personal information. So there, there's quite a lot of stuff in there. Um, and I think it's all thoughtful. And these are, you know, these are directions that we need to be thinking about in terms of data protection. But that's a lot. There's a lot. Um, there is. I mean, a lot of this really would would significantly change some of the approaches that we've had in the past, and some of, some of the kinds of things around algorithms and data mobility or portability feel pretty responsive to uh, both open banking or some of the emerging right. business models that are out there. The changes to consent have caught some people's attention, and not in a good way. Mm -hmm. um, many people say consent is a bedrock of uh, what privacy laws are supposed to look like, and this one seems to suggest that, or at least the government here is suggesting, and consent isn't always all it's cracked up to be if you're always looking for consent in every instance. And a lot of people are effectively consenting to things and they have no real idea of yeah. what they're consenting to. What's your thoughts on, on shifting towards more transparency and better ways of managing one's data without necessarily saying that it's, it's, it's got to be consent in every sort of situation. Yeah. I mean, frankly, I think consent is broken the way it, it is currently um, dealt with um, under, in practice and under the legislation. I mean, the, the, nobody can manage, nobody has the time or the energy to manage information. And, it, you know, and in fact, so many um, services uh, are tied to consent, Right, you can't proceed to get the service unless you agree to the terms and conditions and the privacy policy. So that it's not even a free choice. If you actually you need to do something, you need to agree to the the form. It's not like you get to negotiate it. So, consent and with respect to what's happening to personal information, I think becomes really quite 
um, meaningless in those contexts. So there's uh, uh, something in there that talks about um, taking consent out of contracts for the services, which is interesting. So separating the agreement to the service and the agreement to privacy, that's that's an interesting development. Um, and so I don't see this as being negative with respect to consent. If it's not working right now and if people are consenting left and right, as you say, to to anything just to get access to the service or just because there's it's simply too much of a burden to manage all of this and uh, and frankly then you have to read the privacy policies and understand them and it's <laughs> that's you know that's not an easy thing to do so i think that um, finding ways to make consent more manageable and to reduce the burden on individuals i think is important yeah, it's interesting i think there we're going to end up with quite a battle there certainly from some who say you can't you simply can't abandon that that model, although I, I'm inclined to agree that too often the consent models feel completely illusory. Yeah. That, uh, you're consenting as a matter of course without reading. It's certainly not an informed consent. And we've seen that play out a number of times, let's say, even with the anti-spam legislation where suddenly people were inundated with messages from organizations where they who had purported to obtain some form of consent that was mm -hmm. consistent with where the law was at. And it turned out that most people weren't even aware that someone had ever thought that they'd given that, that kind of consent. Right. So once people are actually made aware of it, they say, hold on a second, this might try to find new mechanisms to ensure that people's perspectives or views are better reflected in terms of how their information is managed, which perhaps holds some promise. It does hold some promise. And, I, and there's, there's discussion in the document about um, it increase uh, expanding the areas for example where fines can be levied so on the enforcement side that and, and consent is specifically mentioned uh, for one of those so if if um, consent is obtained to the or, or if, it, if an individual is sharing information but doesn't consent to certain uses and the information is used for those purposes anyway uh, or disclosed without that the consent then there might actually be the potential to to address that with with fines which would certainly strengthen the uh, which would strengthen the consent that's being given. Because as you say, right now, you know, whether what happens... I mean, there's two things. One is we may be consenting... The vision of what we're consenting to may be quite different from the reality of what we've consented to, and that's one problem, so that you actually have technically agreed to a whole range of disclosures that you didn't mean to agree to. Um, but there's also the situation where you, you know, you go in and you actually take the time to fix your privacy uh, default settings and do all of this. And then you find out after the fact that the, the information was used for purposes that you didn't agree to. And there's not much recourse except right now a complaint to the privacy commissioner, which will lead to a series of findings that say that shouldn't have happened. Right. I'm glad you raised the, the issue of enforcement and, what feels sometimes like the futility of filing complaints when all you're left with is a well-founded finding and starting from scratch to the federal court if you want yeah. something more. The, the government has emphasized the enforcement side yeah. of this. How will what you're proposing be enforced? What kind of penalties will your government establish? That was a key part of the changes that I talked about today. It was really about strong enforcement, so significant and meaningful penalties, maybe a percentage of revenue. And we're gonna be looking at other jurisdictions as well. We're also gonna be looking at how do companies even collect data or revenue. And if they do not follow the privacy laws in this country, we're gonna make it difficult for them not only to collect the revenue, but collect data as well. And this sends a very clear sig signal that enforcement is very important, a part of the changes that we're proposing. It seems to me that part of that may be driven by the news cycle and the, the recent Cambridge Analytica Facebook 
set of findings yeah. from the BC and federal privacy commissioner in which Facebook's response to those findings was, well, thanks, but we're not really that interested. Um, and so the government now says we're talking about real enforcement. In fact, I think I've heard uh, Navdeep Baines talk about potentially global revenues and mm -hmm. sort of modeling on the European approach and he even talked about 5%, I think, in one interview, which would suggest even higher than what we see out of Europe. Mm. Uh, what's, your, what's your view generally on our ability to get large global platforms to pay attention to Canadian privacy law? And is the lack of enforcement one of the, one of the real challenges we faced? Yeah, I think lack of enforcement has generally has been a, a challenge across the board, not just with large platforms, but, but right across the board. And in fact, you know, it may be even more acute um, with, you know, uh, medium to smaller businesses in the sense that a lot of uh, the large platforms are now paying attention to the GDPR and GDPR compliance and are and not just platforms, but um, any large company in Canada that does business um, across borders is going to be, you know, raising their standards to the most um, uh, stringent standards, which are currently GDPR. Um, and so we'll probably benefit indirectly from from that um, so I, I do think but I do think that having um, stricter stronger enforcement measures not only will uh, encourage greater compliance with the legislation because frankly if there isn't really a consequence to not complying then you know, why would you go to the expense of complying uh, and there is an expense there um, uh, so I think that that should make um, that should make a difference. And I think it also um, may help with a general um, sense of futility and disempowerment um, among the broader population when it comes to, uh, when it comes to privacy, the sense that, you know, people want, if, if something goes wrong, people want, and they have a statute that says this is how it's supposed to be, you know, if nothing happens, if there are no consequences, then you know, that's actually, I think, extremely, um, disheartening and discouraging. And this document talks about trust and the importance of building trust and this idea that Canadians are going to ha you know, need to be able to trust when they share these enormous quantities of personal information with companies that, that, uh, that it is being dealt with appropriately. So I do think the enforcement piece is appropriate there. How much of a difference it will actually make, you know, the, um, Facebook and other large companies are being fined left and right in Europe and, and in uh, the United States, so we'll see <laughs> how much impact that has on changing things. I think it will have, I think it will slowly have an impact. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Certainly the, this notion between the large global platforms and the SMEs, I was reading, I think it was just this morning, a piece in The Logic, uh, an, a digital publication focusing on the innovation economy in Canada that was reflecting on the collision conference that took place in Toronto, and they'd asked a lot of CEOs and others about the about the charter and specifically about the privacy reforms. And the response was actually exactly what you just raised. Mm. Those that, that are playing in a global environment said we're already focused on GDPR-like requirements and those enforcement measures. And so as long as the Canadian rules are kind of sufficiently similar or at least recognizable based on the kinds of obligations we face globally, this isn't anything particularly new, but for mm -hmm. some of the SMEs that pay far less attention potentially to some of these rules, this these may be game changers in terms of some of the kinds of things they're required to, to do. Yeah, that's right. And, and you know, it, it's always been um, whenever Pipita reform has come up in the past, and it's come up so many times, um, it's always been this uh, idea that it 
was going to have too much of a uh, negative effect on business, um, and I think their like, SMEs were a big part of that. That it that it was going to have this um, that it was simply going to be too costly and was going to harm business because the cost of compliance would not be um, uh, feasible. Now, I think the cost of non-compliance is going up. Um, we're seeing more and more class action lawsuits, for example, um, in Canada, a really rapidly growing number of class action lawsuits in Canada over data breaches and other uh, mishandling of personal information. So, you know, I, I think that, uh, yeah, there are the, – the, the costs of noncompliance are there and are growing, uh, not just – it's not just all about PIPA. It's, it's what's also happening in other contexts too. I think that's right. One of the other things that's happening right now, of course, isn't – just the privacy side. And one of the things that was notable, I think, about the way even this charter was launched was Prime Minister started talking about it even before Navdeep Baines did. And his point of emphasis wasn't on the privacy side mm. to a significant extent at all. It was more focused on dealing with concerns surrounding hate online and extremism online. Mm -hmm. Here's the reality. People are losing trust in digital institutions for a whole host of reasons. They're anxious about the future of tech and the future of data, from emotional contagion experiments to major privacy breaches. These concerns are absolutely valid. We've seen a big shift in terms of some of the government talking points on this and clearly the prime minister's interest on this. Can you talk a bit about what the charter has to say about regulating social media companies or finding ways to deal with the harms online in a way that we, at least up until recently, hadn't seen our government talking about. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, and it's interesting that this has become, you know, this this has also um, captured so much attention. And, I, you know, and I find it interesting also that the focus is on um, uh, hate and extremism. And I think you know, those are important things to be addressing. So I don't mean to diminish that at, at all. Um, there's also the whole disinformation and, and uh, other sorts of toxic behaviors online. Um, there's, those raise some really big challenges. Um, and they raise challenges, I think, that are going to, um, you know, bring us sharply up against freedom of expression values uh, on the one hand. And on the other hand, they're also going to raise questions about how we're actually going to do this. Um, and you see this a little bit in the right to be forgotten, right? Because it, it's one thing to talk about a right to be forgotten in the privacy context. And then when you're going to implement it, I mean, there's a whole, you, you there's, um, you almost have, you have to turn to the platforms. Um, and it'll be the same thing with dealing with uh, hate and extremism and misinformation is there's going to have to be some sort of relationship with the platforms um, in order to deal with that or to manage it. And so I think that, that it's going to be uh, interesting to see how that that's not going to be easy. Um, no, it's not. We've seen some jurisdictions that may not have charter like rules take pretty aggressive positions in terms of the kinds of expectations they have for some of mm -hmm. these platforms or intermediaries to take action against this kind of content. It was striking that one country that sort of stayed to the sidelines a little bit in the United States, at least with the recent efforts post-Christchurch, part of that may be the companies are based there, but part of it quite clearly is that they've got First Amendment rights there that may find themselves quickly conflicting with 
some of the expectations that we see bubbling up. Mm. I think you're right to raise the charter. Canada, at least this government, has moved itself more and more towards the more aggressive approach, at least in terms of some of the rhetoric, but we still do have Charter of Rights and Freedoms here that may significantly constrain our ability to at least mandate certain kinds of actions. Yeah. Hey, and I think, I mean, I, th- I do think Canada has been maybe better at finding a balance uh, and more open to finding a balance. And I think that the the way in which um, our charter is drafted, for example, it, it does explicitly contain equality rights provisions. And, you know, I, I think that the, the charter itself demands, um, doesn't put one right above another and, and demands uh, balance as well. Um, so I do think that that may provide a different constitutional context, but it, it's it will be challenging and uh, and it'll be particularly challenging because it's it, I think it's going to be hard, especially when you're talking about the major platforms, it's going to be hard to do things on a um, on a piecemeal country specific yeah. basis the, the the global issues are uh, going to be extremely complex. Um, because the message, you know, it's one thing if the message is coming from Canada and, you know, that that makes it a lot easier than if the message is coming from another ca- country. So, uh, you know, I think the global dimensions are, are going to make this... Incredibly challenging. Yeah. Um, I mean, we think the Equistat case, of course, in Canada raised this issue of Canadian court orders applying outside of our jurisdiction. And yeah. you, you, you quickly devolve to a place where if every country gets to say, these are the standards that we want to see applied to access to certain kinds of content, and our expectation is full-scale moderation by the large platforms, you're throwing out or losing a whole lot of freedom of expression along the way and yeah. may, and finding places that may not have the same kind of cultural considerations or legal rules or safeguards in place starting to mm-hmm. make decisions for countries that do. Yeah, and then of course, who are who are the the very low paid moderators who are reviewing the content, and where are they located, and you know what values uh, uh, influence them, and and what kind of conditions are they working in, and and you know, and some of it of course may shift to AI, but then you've got all of the you know, so th- this is this this will be this is not going to be solved overnight, um, and it, it's not going to be solved without controversy controversy either, but um, but. But they're, you know, they're really important issues, um, and I think they're becoming uh, even more critical as we move forward. But, uh, yeah, that that's going to be tough. <laughs> it is. I mean, it feels like that's the case for a lot of these yeah. issues here. I mean, I, I come back to this description of it as a chart where there was a lot of different things raised. There isn't an immediacy to, to make changes in some instances, in part because, as you mentioned, we're in an election year, and so that clock has effectively run out on full legislative change. And even something beyond that is is less than legislation is still difficult. Mm. Um, I'd be remiss before we close if I didn't pick up on you, just had a little brief reference to AI. And that's yeah. been one of the focal points um, in this as well. And certainly of this government, which mm-hmm. has made significant investments yeah. in AI and talk more and more about AI policy. Uh, you're, you've been named as a member of the new AI Advisory Council. One of our colleagues, Ian Kerr, is another member mm-hmm. of that council. Any thoughts on the role, either the council or even perhaps more broadly, if it's still early days there, that Canada can play when it comes to some of these AI policies that in some ways raise some of the same kinds of global challenges? Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, and I think it is early days, so so there's not a lot that I could say about the the council itself. Um, but I do think that there 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 are really two pieces. One is the role that Canada can play internationally in influencing and in helping to develop approaches and. Um, uh, ethical approaches and ethical guidelines and standards for artificial intelligence and um, sort of more global norms around the circumstances in which AI should or should not be used. And uh, so there's that international role, but there's a domestic role as well. Um, and I think that, the, you know, for example, the government recently um, uh, put in place its directive on automated decision-making in the federal government, which is a really interesting document. Um, and there's uh, a, a great deal of thought went into it, um, uh, and it's meant to, do, to to guide and to shape how automated decision making will take place in government. And we're kidding we're kidding ourselves if we're if we think that that's not already happening and that it's not going to continue to happen and and grow on a uh, on a more significant scale. Um, and that's just the federal government. We've got all of our provincial governments who are also you know looking at automated decision-making in a variety of forms. So it's here. It's affecting our lives. Um, there's the whole private sector piece as well. So I, I know that the AI, uh, the, the Advisory Council, of course, is not going to touch on what provincial governments do or any of that sort of thing. But um, but I think there there is um, a tremendous amount of change that is happening um, and impacts that we are going to experience as a society. And and we need to be thinking about how we're how we're going to um, manage those changes, how we're going to to um, develop uh, equitable, fair processes and protocols. Um, whether the decision making is coming from government or from the private sector, it's going to have significant impacts in our lives. Um, so, yeah, there's a there's no shortage of work to do on the AI side as well. No, there's not. Well, you know, I, I think I, I speak for a lot of people and I, well, I'm grateful that you're on that council and grateful for the, the work you've been doing on these challenges, whether it's through your blog and your research and the writing that you've done. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Well, thank you. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. That's L-A-W-B-Y-T-E-S at P-O-Box.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at LawBitesPod or Michael Geist at MGeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time.